Welcome to Left Foot. We invite fresh conversation on business development. Now here's your host, Nicole Giantonio. Hello, listeners. It's Nicole Giantonio, the founder of Left Foot. And I'm here to announce that our 12 audio-based business development challenges are now available. 12 practical, execution-oriented steps to predictable success. Part of the Left Foot GPS growth practice solutions for business development. Go to leftfoot.com GPS for details. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Left Foot. Today's guest is a technology lawyer by design. She started her career as an IP litigator before going in-house and working for several startups. Today, she is active in the startup world, is on the board of two early-stage startups, and is the general counsel and assistant secretary for the San Francisco-headquartered sales and marketing and engagement platform, ClearSlide. Olga Mack, welcome to Left Foot. Hi, Nicole. It's great to be here. Great to have you as a guest on our program, Olga. Let's jump into our questions. Which of your personal strengths or habits have allowed you to be successful as an in-house lawyer, as a general counsel? Well, Nicole, I'm a general counsel at a tech startups. So my ability to learn quickly, soberly assess risks, and work well with other business professionals has been instrumental to my success and effectiveness. Excellent. And I would imagine when you're working with a startup, you're having to really be conscious of how you're spending your time and how you're spending company resources, investor resources. Is there anything unique about an approach that you've taken, say, at your current organization or at prior organizations that you think would be great advice to other GCs that are in that startup space? I think, you know, I've been at Fortune 500 companies and law firms and startups. So there are very few legal jobs that I haven't seen. I think what's unique about startup jobs or tech companies or generally companies that are short on resources is that you have to rely on stakeholders that are not lawyers much more actively and you have to build trusting relationships and you have to educate them routinely. Developing those trusting relationships is very important. In your role, either when you were with the firm or today as a general counsel, what resonates for you when a organization comes in, whether it be a law firm, a legal tech company, a legal outsourcing company, when they come in to talk to you about their business and are attempting to build trust, what resonates for you? Is it data? Is it their approach? Is it you know, the prior success they have? You know, What's the strongest approach for someone that would want to be coming to you and talking to you about services they can provide that will assist your organization in the legal spend, basically handling legal issues? What helps to get on the right foot, whether you're a law firm provider or offshoring solution or alternative legal provider, is to have a great working relationship with whomever your service recipients are and that those people recommend you very highly. You know, technology is very important in our business increasingly, and we are increasingly becoming open-minded, but some things stay the same. And the things that stay the same are referrals are still very important and powerful. And when my peers, other general counsel or other tech lawyers highly recommend a vendor of any sort, whether it is a law firm or a non-lawyer 
or any other provider, I definitely listen and that definitely helps color the relationship. I absolutely agree. When you're asked about a referral, are you looking for obviously quality, quality being you know the table stakes? There's a lot of high quality lawyers. There's a lot of high quality and well-performing firms and tech vendors at this point. And then you mentioned, you know, you want them to establish in a relationship with you. You know, what does that look like? Can you give us an example of where you've seen or had the experience of having a provider come in and relatively quickly be able to create rapport with you in a way that you had confidence, even if they came through a referral, but you had confidence in their services. You know, what did that look like more specifically, more tactically? It really depends what I'm buying. Sometimes quality is more important than other times. And I think when I work with any provider, I am very explicit about what quality looks like. You have to pay increasingly more in the margin for excellent quality. And I may or may not need an excellent quality depending on the project. So that communication is very important. To answer your second question with respect of examples, yes. For example, there is a real estate council that I work with routinely, and he actually is not local. He is located elsewhere in the United States. He, however, very much understands the local San Francisco real estate market, which is very challenging, especially when you're a smaller company. He understands the pressures of startups and small organizations. And I find, even though I'm not a real estate lawyer by design, I find myself negotiating numerous real estate transactions for the last 10 years. And I find this particular attorney to be very effective because he knows the market. He understands my needs. He gives me information that one, useful to me and two, useful to my business stakeholders. And I really enjoy working with him. It's very efficient. It's very effective. It's enjoyable. And so I recommend this guy to everyone who asks and those who don't ask. And I take him wherever I go. So he's become a true business partner to you and in the businesses that you operate in. And of course, to your associates as well. You know, you've had this strong experience with him. Have you had other experiences that were less than helpful and less than successful? And could you pinpoint in your evaluation of that service at the beginning where you might have missed something that would have been an indication that the ultimate result wouldn't be quite what you were looking for? Nicole, if I don't enjoy working with a provider for whatever reason, that relationship doesn't Mm -hmm. last very long. I find myself working with somebody else uh, relatively quickly. Generally speaking, I've had really amazing experiences with providers, just generally speaking, because I do rely on my network for recommendations. So for example, I am part of Women General Counsel Network. I am part of the San Francisco Bay Area General Counsel CLO Initiative, which I organized. I'm part of Sun Law Initiative, which aims at uh, mid-level in-house women. So I can tell you if I send an email to one of those groups or all three, I'll get referrals to amazing people within less than half an hour. And those satisfied in-house counsel who've had amazing experiences will give you all the juicy details. People will share horror stories as well as they will share recommendations. 
patients. Relying on my network really has assured that I've had very positive experiences with my providers. We've often said that bad experiences tend to be talked about more. It depends. The network of true peers, and it's very deep, you get conversations on both sides and people share their experiences. As someone who has had a variety of experiences, what do you think is unique about the way you're making decisions around your legal spend for the startup? Is there something more unique in that environment that you can pinpoint for our lawyers that are really working with and interested in working with startups? Yes, I think so. I definitely expect the providers to embrace technology, and that includes law firms. Some of them are more active at doing it than others. I really would like to see more of that. I work at a technology startup. We don't use much paper. So I really think the combination of bright mind and a 21st century technology could be amazing. And I look forward to the providers who are pioneering the inclusion of technology in their services to provide added value. I also would like to see quantifying of success and service delivery, both for me. So I appreciate what has been done and how much effort and what results have occurred, but also so that I can intelligently communicate it to my stakeholders, my leaders, my board, my CEO. Some sort of creative way to quantify is helpful. And I look up to the providers to do that because in my mind, they're not just specialists in the service delivery. They're also specialists in measuring outcomes and resources. I think it's very important that they understand sort of my business and when I communicate you know, how much I would like to receive on what quality. I think listening for those cues is very, very important because unlike many big companies, I don't come with unlimited budget. And my goal is to leverage an army of two lawyers to have a large presence. And outside counsel and legal providers is one of many ways I do that. I think I also look for things like adding value to the services that are provided. For example, many of my providers make very useful introductions. They share industry trends. They offer creative approaches that I would not think of because I'm not a specialist in the area. I really get engaged when a provider goes out of his or her way to offer something that she didn't have to. And then I think any relationship requires maintenance and keeping in touch with me. I think it's independent of whether I'm at a tech company or a traditional company. I think there is at the end a human element. The people that I enjoy working with, I know very well. I know a lot about their kids. They know a lot about mine. And those are professional business relationships slash friendships that help us throughout our careers. Absolutely agree. And and I think that relationship building, whether it starts as a work relationship and then expands or starts as a personal relationship and expands into work, it does make that whole work experience much more positive and partnering. There's a trust factor, right? So whether you met someone on the sidelines at a soccer game and you basically interpreted their being a great supporter of their children and great supporter of their community into being a great lawyer, a great service provider, those things happen. 
there's that relationship. There's a connection there that says if they're a good parent, they're likely a good business person. We've heard that more than once when people say, oh, I'm very uncomfortable in the business development side of what I have to do. If you think about it, if you're a good person and you're good at the things you do, people will assume that you don't even have to overly communicate it. But you can make it stronger with things like data and quantifying points that you made earlier. And I know when you think about a tech solution, the offerings that ClearSlide, for one, has and presents to the market, I'm sure your clients are evaluating that solution based on results. So for you and in the work that you've done with the providers you've partnered with, what kind of data have they presented to you or what kind of quantifiable results have they presented to you that has really resonated and has really said, yes, I'm making my decision because they clearly stated for me how they can help me or how they can help my organization? You know, that depends on the service, of course. And the truth is, you know, look, I mean, the traditional metrics of ours is probably traditional because it's the easiest. Other matrices are really require creativity and thinking through what what is important to your client and what is the best way to measure various things depending on the service you provide. So, for example, real estate time between negotiation and closing is very important because, you know, there's not that many properties within the range of affordable that are available at any given time in San Francisco. So this timing between the negotiation and closure is a very interesting measure that I would like to know. So that would be one example. And to extent, I expect the provider to offer those to me as opposed to me asking for them. They're much better positioned to offer to the extent results are public. They can offer that up as examples or teaching moments. For example, had experiences where I was going through tough either transaction or litigation, and my outside provider has connected me with other in-house lawyers who've done this before, just for coaching slash psychological support. And I found that very helpful. Those people definitely did not replace my outside counsel. They just enriched the experience. They helped me to grow as a lawyer who never experienced certain things. I made valuable connections in-house. We both had a one topic in common, and that is a provider that we both love. So it was overall a very positive experience to offer somebody who I wouldn't know who've gone through similar experience before with this provider. Those are great points. And that idea too, of being able to talk with someone who's gone through it, because of course there are other things besides, you know, what the service provider is going to offer. I mean, there's that recommendation of what to look out for and what's going to happen after the conclusion, the results and how to communicate it and all those things that maybe a provider can assist with, but you know, someone who's gone through it has that more relevant experience. And now a word from our sponsor, Nicole here, and a shout out and thank you for tuning into the Left Foot Podcast. Are you looking to energize your business development efforts? Our 12 Left Foot Business Development Challenges will energize your efforts in three areas. Business Development Grit, tactical habits that lead to business development success, including networking, nailing your niche, 
how to focus and develop an expert reputation, commercial savoir-faire, a discussion on business and the revenue side of law. At Left Foot, we believe 20% of people are natural at business development, 10% say no to business development, and 70% are neutral and can adopt the skills necessary when presented in an organized, methodical way. To learn more and be challenged, go to the GPS page at leftfoot.com. So great points. You work in San Francisco. Your company is headquartered there. You're involved with other groups there and have tremendous recognition in that market. So my assumption is, and I think it's accurate, is that you get to see a lot of innovative things and talk to other companies that are in the tech space that are doing innovative things and you know innovative things in the legal side of their businesses and in legal operations per se. Um, obviously, it's smaller organizations probably not formal legal operations, but legal operations, legal purchasing has really influenced a lot of those tech companies. Technology has influenced them in the legal departments. What have you seen out there that you would consider truly innovative? And it doesn't have to be anything that you've implemented, but something that you've said, wow, that's really going to make a difference in our space. You're absolutely right. The tech operations part of law is increasingly important. Groups like CLOCK and ACC's operations initiative are very influential. Their membership has skyrocketed in the last couple of years. I've attended a number of conferences, both on ACC and CLOCK. They showcase amazing technology. I think that technology, objectively speaking, is still somewhat in its infancy. So I think we'll see in the next five, 10 years, a lot of development and implementation. It is very apparent that big law departments and frankly, small departments are looking up to technology to leverage and what I call, you know, taking an army of two lawyers and help them have a presence of an army of a hundred or a thousand lawyers. You know, it is increasingly a trend that big law departments hire an operation specialist that is often a very senior role that reports directly to general counsel. What this person does usually varies a lot. It may range from measuring to managing budget to negotiating with vendors collectively to being in charge of diversity initiatives. So there is no one job description, even though it's a popular hire these days. So technology will be important for big departments, absolutely. And the operations is a key there. I think that for smaller departments, they will be in a slightly different market because from what I've seen, some solutions really target bigger departments versus others smaller. Nonetheless, I think the biggest difference technology will make is in the smaller departments. So, for example, you hear those stories of people implementing electronic signature solutions and how it transformed businesses. You hear stories of people implementing stock administration solutions and how that transformed their businesses. You hear people implementing streamlining smaller, less important contracts and NDAs and how that created efficiencies and how they're quantifiable. You hear people implementing immigration solutions. There are a number of platforms that offer those solutions as well. And again, those have introduced a lot of both efficiencies and I've experienced it personally, better 
interface for your employees to get information and be communicated with. So there are a number of those niche things that I've implemented and others have implemented that make a big difference that are cost effective. And one, introduce a lot of efficiencies and two, lead to much more satisfying experience for those people in the business. I think we'll see more of that. And while I think the big departments and smaller departments are generally in separate markets for technologies, I think the technology and operations role will make a huge difference for both. Absolutely agree. And I think, you know, the example you gave, electronic signatures, and and of course we hear about, you know, e-discovery, of course, in cases, obviously inside the firms, but there's, what a time saving, just the electronic signatures. I mean, I think about real estate and all the different entities where it's required. And frankly, Olga, there's a whole discussion point on whether signatures are even have value any longer. Definitely a great topic. You mentioned earlier, that using hourly billing, the reference was that it's being used and continues to be used because it's easy. We had a lot of discussion on LeftFoot about hourly billing and AFAs and, and different approaches to creating value in how legal opinion, legal advice is charged for, let's say it that way. In your opinion, you know, has the changing market conditions done a lot to move the industry away from hourly billing? And what are you hearing and seeing that is impacting how legal services, legal advice, law firms are pricing their work? What are you hearing out there? What is in your view as far as the future of the hourly bill and the options that at least the ones that are on the table now and and possibly ones that are just entering the market? I think when it comes to discussing billable hours, at the end of the day, you know, it has to be to an extent profitable to a law firm. Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing this. And what's important for many in-house folks, especially in small departments, is predictability. I mean, the size of the budget is constraint number one. Constraint number two is that, you know, if I communicate to my CFO that I need this budget, that means that's the budget I need. There's not much room to go up. And if I don't fit in, it's really definitely causes uncomfortable discussions at a leadership and board level, which I would like to avoid. So those are my constraints. And so, you know, for me, the hourly rate is not all that satisfying, just generally speaking, because we are not having precise enough discussions. You know, I do think that billable hour is generally antiquated. I do think that in some cases, it just does make sense to make sure that law firms can stay in business and I receive quality services that I need. You know, it just what I look for, independent of how it is built, is an adult discussion about my budget and predictability and how to manage that reality with my CFO, for example. And so what I observe happening is that sometimes we treat those discussions a little bit like, you know, a discussion I had in high school with respect to whether or not I go to a prom and with whom. It's kind of a little bit of a taboo subject. need to have much more open and sober discussions because budget management is a very 
important reality of in-house lawyers. We have to take the risk out because you have a budget. The hourly billing rate, in a lot of cases, there's risk, not all, right? If it's a smaller matter and you know, you've know you got a pretty good indication from the partner you're working with, you have a sense, right, from their response of how much it's going to cost. It can help remove some of that risk, but there has to be a way to alleviate risk of going over budget while still getting the result that you need. And one of the discussions we talk a lot about, Olga, is value. There are certain matters where it's going to be critically important. And so there's a high value placed on the, the dollars you're spending to get the results that you need in the time frame you need it. And I think if the provider can clue you in and through the competitive bid process, create that value, it's going to take us, we, the fixed fee for this result is this. And you equate that result and that price tag to being a good value, being the right value, you might say yes, right? And then of course, does it fit into my budget? All good points. It's part of the discussion. And, and I think lawyers, which is a great lead into our next questions, have to be comfortable with the business side of the discussion. It is part of their business. They need clients, they need work, and it's definitely part of your business. What I've seen, because you know, I talk to leaders of legal departments, big and small, is that those of us who have a larger in-house budget have a much greater leverage to negotiate fees and involve in the competitive bidding, mostly because we also have a, you know, for those people in large departments, they have a staff to really put out RFPs, collect the information, process information, right? Meet, greet, the whole thing that I generally don't have time to do or resources to do. And it is true that those leaders from larger in-house departments have a greater leverage. I do, however, think that law firms and providers should also be more open-minded with small department leaders as well, much more so than I think they currently are. Because, I mean, I think the reality is today I could be at a small company, tomorrow I will be at a large company and vice versa. There's a lot of fluidity and the vendors with whom I had amazing experiences and who offered me value, great value when I was at a small company will definitely become my providers at a big company as well. So I think it is important to realize that we have very long careers and they are increasingly mobile. And so while those Fortune 500 companies will always be on top of radar of most law firms, understand that it is very important to provide value to even more important, I think, to a smaller company. One, because it actually will have a much greater impact. And two, it will never be forgotten. And three, there's a lot of fluidity. And the person who helps you when you have much less leverage to negotiate will forever be the counsel of choice, really, or provider of choice. And the reality is I talk to a lot of in-house leaders from big departments and and when somebody tells me that this is a rate and they don't negotiate, and then I check it against the experiences of my peers at big companies and I find out that's a lie, that's very disappointing because what it signals to me is that my business is not important, which is maybe a sober reality and I understand, but it also colors my interactions with that provider in the future. I absolutely agree with you. First off, that you know people do move. Lawyers, especially when we talk to law firm partners, 
partners, they'll talk about the fact that a lot of their business comes from customers they've worked with in other environments. And it may have been an associate that they had the pleasure of working with at a firm. It may be a small project that they did with someone at another organization. And when they moved, they called them because they had confidence that the experience that they had previously was you know, a strong one and that the person would be able to accomplish what needs to be accomplished at this new environment so that it happens all the time. And then it's interesting, I have to say, as someone who runs a small business and has worked in big corporations, I think we're now educated to the fact that through SaaS and SaaS solutions, that there is a way to offer those that don't need all of the bells and whistles of an offering an appropriate price right? A value price. And you see that all the time in these SaaS applications. And it's a great lesson to those in different areas that, hey, you can offer the slim user a free option or a very you know nominally priced solution so that they can be a supporter of your offering. They can be out there marketing it to others that might need a more expensive option. I mean, there's a lot of ways today. And I think technology, of course, has helped that. Can they use technology in delivering that solution to make their actual time spent that much less, right? So that they can give you, again, a value price or provide that offering. So I think there's so much today that has changed in the market. So Olga, I know you've received a strong amount of recognition in the market in which you work for the work that you've done with startups, for the work that you're doing with helping women lawyers and other women leaders in having the strong careers that we know they should be having and are having. What do you enjoy most about the work that you're doing, whether it's the work you're doing in the legal startup space or the work you're doing in the community? What's the most enjoyable for you? You know, I think at the end of the day, most people go to law school and I went to law school to make a difference in the world. And somewhere between the second and third year, we, most law school graduates, find ourselves choosing between a good living and making a difference. And I'm convinced that a, a dichotomy doesn't have to happen and that as most choices that are so black and white, there is a third option. And the third option is that you can have a comfortable living and make an impact wherever you are. I do think that, you know, working on innovative technology is definitely one way to do it. And and that's a reason why I really enjoy tech companies and uh, startups. I, as I said, I've been fortunate to work at a great law firm. I was at Wilson City, and then at some point I was at a Fortune 500 company. I was at Visa, and then I've been also fortunate to work at a number of startups and advise many startups. And the passion to see the change and to improve lives of others is very contagious, and I really enjoy it. And my community work is the same in the sense that just because because I have a day job doesn't mean I'm not a participant in the community. I have two children. I went to law school because I would like to have an impact on this world. And I definitely want to live it slightly better, a little bit more fair and a lot more enjoyable for others. And so I prioritize my community work in order to live up to the reasons why I went to law school in the first place. I think as lawyers, we're in a very fortunate and highly educated position. We are either decision makers or we are in the room and have a lot of influence over important decisions. Some of them relate to purchasing, but frankly, just doing the right things for the company or community. 
And, you know, I worked very hard to be where I am. And I also would like to use the benefits of my education and career to leverage, to impact the world around me and both at work and after. I love that point about you have the opportunity to help others make decisions, to make decisions and to influence and to use that effectively. That really resonates. I know that resonates for me. Olga, we appreciate you sharing your thoughts with our listeners. Any last points you'd like to share before we say goodbye? I think legal practice is really undergoing a lot of sort of fundamental changes. And I think there will be change and transformation of the way we practice, provide services and receive services. And I think it will be in our lifetime. I don't think it will happen today or tomorrow, but I do think it will happen in our lifetime. I think it is very important for both the in-house and outside law firm professionals. We need to embrace new technology, collaborate and ultimately thrive. I think any change is very hard, but I also think that it's an opportunity to make legal practice much more enjoyable. I think through those changes and technologies, if we work together and use our minds to come up with better process and processes and solutions, I think not only can we get sort of the monetary benefits, I think we can have a more enjoyable legal careers that help us all thrive. Great point. And that idea of having the legal ecosystem that lawyers can rely on and work with so that there's a little less pressure on their need to perform all of these things and more ability to help them do exactly what you said earlier, help people make solid decisions and influence in a way that really does help. Terrific last point. Olga, thank you. It's been a pleasure having you as a guest on Left Foot. Thank you, Nicole. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for listening to this episode of Left Foot. For information on our podcast, our 12-session business development challenge, and our online business development coursework, visit leftfoot.com. It takes focus and thought to lead with the left foot. Until next time.